Well, Keith and Kristen, I'm sure I speak for so many here by saying thank you for your ministry in all of our churches. Thank you. I also want to say that it is such a joy always to be at the conference and, of course, a great privilege to speak to you men. And this is a particularly nostalgic year for me as we celebrate John's 50th year of ministry here. It was in September of 1987 that my wife and I arrived in Los Angeles. We'd never visited. We simply packed up our little Toyota Corolla and moved across country because we wanted for the first time in our lives to be a part of a church that we felt like was a model and reflection of the New Testament. We sat right over here in this section, and our first Sunday at Grace Church, we literally cried our way through the day because we felt like at last we had found our people and our home. And um, I look back over the last 32 years, and you know, there's, there's a way to measure the impact and scope of a man's ministry. And, in just in terms of the volume and the expanse of it. And certainly, John's ministry has been a profound one by that standard. But there's also a way to measure it very personally and intimately, and that's true in my life and the life of my family. You know, over these 32 years, it's been a privilege to know him and to serve him and serve with him, alongside of him, to travel with him in all kinds of settings. And um, you know, there are a lot of things that I could say about John. I love his commitment to the Scripture. I love his courage, his boldness. But I'll just tell you the thing that always stands out to me and that I appreciate most is that he is in private what he seems in public. There is no higher testimony that you could give to a preacher of the gospel than that. And it, it is uh, my joy to say that's true. And there's no man that I love and respect more than John, and I'm so grateful for the impact of his life on my ministry, on my church, and in whatever opportunities the Lord has given me. So it's such a privilege to be here on this occasion. This afternoon, we turn our attention to an issue that is really not controversial, like the last hour, <laughs> but one that is, frankly, even more important. Because the most accurate measure of our faithfulness is the one we will study in this hour. Because if we fail here, we are not and cannot be truly faithful men or pastors. The greatest test of our faithfulness after what happens in our hearts is what happens in our homes. Are we faithful in fulfilling the duties that Christ has assigned us to our wives and to our children. Now, obviously, when we talk about in the home, we're talking about both of those duties, and marriage and parenting are, are two distinct biblical topics and priorities, obviously addressed in countless passages. So to redeem our time this afternoon, I want to consider the one biblical priority that makes the greatest difference in our homes as men, as leaders, as pastors. The one biblical priority. You see, faithfulness in our homes always begins with and is measured by our faithfulness in our marriages. In fact, just the other day I, I heard 
this was already in my notes, but I heard John say it, so I'll quote him instead. He said, the greatest thing you can do for your kids is to love your wife. So that's where I want to focus our time together this afternoon. We have to begin, sadly, by acknowledging that faithfulness in ministry and faithfulness in marriage are not always companions. Of course, there have been many wonderful examples throughout church history of well-known pastors and church leaders who had wonderful marriages. There's Martin and Katie Luther. There's John and Idolette Calvin, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, Charles and Susanna Spurgeon, Martin and Bethann Lloyd-Jones. And I would have to say from 32 years of personal observation, I would add John and Patricia MacArthur. So there are many wonderful examples to see and to embrace and to follow, but it's also true, sadly, that there are many pastors, both well-known and not, who have unhealthy marriages. We admire and celebrate the commitment of the legendary missionary C.T. Studd, who served in China, but for 15 of those years he served without his wife before returning home for a short time and leaving her again for the Congo. For five days in 1740, George Whitfield stayed with Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. He later wrote he had never seen a sweeter couple and began to pray for a wife like Sarah. But when Whitfield eventually married, he failed to demonstrate a consistent pattern of loving, gracious care for his wife. He considered his marriage a distraction. In fact, he once famously returned to England by ship without even telling his wife. Try that in your marriage. <laughs> when she died, a protege wrote that Whitfield's mind, quote, was put at great liberty, end quote. John Wesley believed that marriage interfered with commitment to Christ, so he made his wife Molly agree that she would never interfere by asking him to lighten his itinerant preaching schedule. Molly tried to keep up with him, travel with him for a year, but as Michael Haken writes, after tramping around the British countryside, sleeping under hedgerows, eating half-cooked meals, she told him she was settling down in London their marriage began to disintegrate. They experienced ongoing tension because of some correspondence that he had with some other women. It was so bad that his wife actually monitored his mail. Once she publicly accused him of being unfaithful, although there is no evidence to support that charge. John and Molly eventually separated, and when she died, she had been dead for three days before he found out. Now, I don't mean to throw our past and some of our heroes, those of you on both sides of the, uh, the theological spectrum, I sort of picked on everybody in, that, in those sets of illustrations. I don't mean to throw them under the bus here. I just want us to acknowledge that, that God used these men in remarkable ways in spite of their weaknesses and sins just as he does us. But how much more would their lives have honored Christ if they had been as faithful in their marriages as they were in their ministries? The same is true for us. One does not mean the other. 
for our time together this afternoon, I want us to consider the one primary duty that lies at the foundation of a biblical marriage, and ultimately, our success in this priority will will determine our faithfulness. It's laid out in one of the New Testament's most familiar passages. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, let me just say that I I really struggled with coming to this passage. In fact, I do so this afternoon with a great deal of trepidation because everyone here has taught this passage and and can therefore be tempted to think there is little to learn here. But I just couldn't get away from it. And I decided that we should study it together this afternoon for two basic reasons. Number one, because it's the most complete explanation of our duty as husbands found anywhere in the Scripture. And secondly, because not a single one of us has fully plumbed the depths of its meaning or fully lived out its imperatives. I have often confessed to my wife, Sheila, that I don't meet the standard, but by God's grace, I will with all of my heart continue to pursue it. That's why I think it's important for me, I think it's important for all of us to meditate again on this remarkable passage. Let me just say that if you're here this afternoon and and you can stand before Jesus Christ and your wife and say that you have mastered this passage, then I give you permission not to listen. (laughs) Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church." Now, the premise behind this amazing passage is stated clearly in verse 23, and that is the husband is the head of the wife. Paul doesn't say we ought to be, but that we, in fact, are. Whether we like it or not, we are leading. We may be good leaders, we may be poor leaders, we may be active leaders, or we may have abdicated our responsibility, but in God's sight, we are and bear the responsibility for being the head, being the leaders in our home. If there are problems in your marriage, you may not bear all the guilt, but as the leader, you bear the complete responsibility. In this text, Paul wants us to understand that that although we are the God-appointed leaders in our homes, we don't get to define what that leadership looks like. We don't get to say what leadership approach we will take. Instead, there is a model 
that is given to us that we are called to imitate, and that model is the love of Jesus Christ for his church. In marriage, men, we have one primary calling, captured in just one biblical command. And everything we need to know about that imperative is right here in Ephesians 5. Now, let me give you a roadmap for this text and where we're going this afternoon. In this text, we discover three basic insights about faithfulness in marriage. The first is our primary calling, and it's love, the beginning of verse 25. Secondly, we will discover love's primary expressions, beginning in the middle of verse 25, running down through verse 30. And then finally, love's primary goals in verses 31 and 32. So let's Let's look at it together. First of all, our primary calling, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Now, to grasp the importance of this command, you first have to understand the flow of Paul's thought. You understand, of course, that the book of Ephesians, and we might disagree slightly on its purpose, but for our purposes, I'll say the eternal plan of God. Regardless, we would agree in this, the first three chapters are the indicatives of the gospel. Here is what God has done and who we are in Christ. In fact, there is only one command, one imperative in the first three chapters of the, of the book of Ephesians, and that is remember in chapter 2, verse 11. It's not really a, an imperative to do something. It's recalling those, those indicatives to mind. Of course, you turn the corner in chapter 4, verse 1. In light of who you are in Christ, in light of the calling that you have received, I want you to walk worthy. I beg you to walk in a way that's worthy of that calling, that position. And then come a series of imperatives. Now, you come to our paragraph, and just before it, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, I want you to walk in wisdom. As you walk worthy, part of that is to walk in biblical wisdom. How does that happen? Well, in verse 18, he explains, he says, the way you walk in biblical wisdom is to be filled with the Spirit. That is to allow the Spirit to fill us with a deeper understanding of His Word so that we then walk in biblical wisdom. Then, having said that, in verse 18, in verses 19 to 21, Paul explains the primary consequences of being filled with or under the Spirit's influence as we are, as it's recorded for us in the Word of God, as we are taught in God's Word. Now, what are those primary consequences of being filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, a love for God-centered music. Verse 20, a pattern of thanksgiving. And verse 21, a heart of submission to human authority. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let me just say, by the way, that this is not a verse about the mutual submission of a husband and wife to each other. Check me out. I did it just this morning. Find one place in the New Testament where this Greek word is used for anything but submission to rightful authority. There is no example. That's what it's talking about. One of the consequences, one of the results of being under the influence of the Spirit is a submission to rightful authority. 
And having said that then, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5 and running all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, Paul gives three examples of submission to authority. The first is that of wives to their husbands, beginning in verse 22 and running down through verse 33. The second example comes in the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It is children submitting to their parents. And then in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, it's slaves to masters. So understand that this entire section is about submission to rightful authority. Three verses address the children's submission in chapter 6, and only one talk about the authority, the parents. And then when he gets to slaves, he spends four verses dealing with submission to authority and only one verse on the authority's responsibility. But remarkably, in the passage we just read, with wives and husbands, he only devotes three verses to wives' submission to their husbands, but nine to us. Now, what is Paul doing here? Clearly, this stresses the importance of this issue. Paul essentially, and we've all done this as preachers, he essentially interrupts his main point to speak at length about something that's on his heart, something that's foundational, that's strategic, and it's our role as husbands. He wants to correct our sinful ideas of what headship means. Alexander Strzok, who's with us this week, wrote this. He said, tragically, some Christian men think that headship means dictatorship or lordship, being the boss. Thus, the Christian doctrine of headship has been misused to justify the physical and mental abuse of women, keeping women in their place, demeaning and controlling women, working wives to death, or neglecting them. But Christian husbands who abuse or neglect their wives don't understand authentic Christian marriage. They don't understand loving servant leadership, and they certainly don't understand Ephesians 5. Verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives. This was absolutely revolutionary in the first century. Some of the commands that we'll see in the rest of this passage were part of the culture at large. Not this one. A command to love one's wife doesn't appear in any first century list of husband's duties. Love your wife. Now, immediately we can see several implications of this imperative. The first and most obvious is that marriage does not exist for self-fulfillment. If you listen to people today explain why they're getting married, invariably the, the reason that lies behind it is their own fulfillment, entirely selfish reasons. I have three daughters, and uh, they have occasionally talked me into doing something against my better judgment. <laughs> One night, they convinced me to watch an entire episode of the program called Say Yes to the Dress, in which a bride shops for a dress for her wedding. I have to tell you, man, it, it was something like a train wreck. I, I didn't want to watch, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> and as these brides talked about why they were getting married as they shopped for the perfect dress, every single reason they gave came back to self-fulfillment. But this imperative 
the chief imperative for us to love our wives reminds us that marriage is not about what we get out of it. It is not chiefly about us at all. This imperative tells us that marriage, like everything else in our lives as believers, is about loving God and loving others. Is that how you think about your relationship with your wife? A second sort of implication that grows out of this imperative is that no husband is exempt for any reason. He addresses his command to husbands to all who are currently in the married state, but, but ultimately to all men here, unless you believe God has gifted you for singleness. Now, we've, we've all heard the excuses from husbands. We're pastors, and we sat in counseling sessions, and we've heard husbands say things like this. You know, you just don't know my wife when you tell me I need to love her. Well, maybe not as well as you do, but, but God does. And this command is still there. Well, you know, she's just not really the same woman I married. Really? Who is she? (laughs) Listen, your spouse may have changed, but this imperative hasn't changed. Well, she doesn't submit to me. This command is not conditioned on her obedience to Christ. It's conditioned on your obedience to Christ. I no longer find her attractive. That's a sad one. I think many times in today's culture, the reason that idea surfaces in the mind of a man is because regardless of how attractive his wife is, she can't compete with surgically and digitally altered pornographic images on the Internet. Besides, biblical love is not primarily about physical attraction, but spiritual commitment. Well, my wife doesn't love me. You understand this. You've preached this. Biblical love doesn't find its motive in the object loved, but in the will of the one loving, just like God himself. Men, there are no acceptable excuses. Maybe your marriage is in a difficult state. There is no acceptable reason for you not to do what this passage is explaining. Another implication of this imperative is that by the grace of God and by the work of the Spirit of God, we can love our wives. And of course, an obvious implication is that love begins not with the emotions. I'm not saying it doesn't include emotion, but it doesn't begin with emotion. It begins with the will. You and I both have heard men say, well, you know, I just don't love her anymore, as if it's something beyond their control. But the fact that God commands us to love means love begins with and and is sustained by an act of the will. We understand this. I mean, the most obvious example of this is when it comes to adoption. And a couple decides to adopt a child and set their love upon that child. Christ commands all of us to constantly love our wives. Now, you understand, of course, that the Greek word here is the word agape, which occurs six times in this section. Let me just caution you to be careful of drawing too great a distinction between agape and phileo. In John 5, verse 20, Christ said, the Father loves him with a phileo kind of love. And 
agape isn't always used of high and holy love. In fact, in Luke 11, verse 43, Jesus said that the scribes and Pharisees loved, the verb form of agape, the chief seats in the synagogue. You see, agape and phileo are used often as synonyms to describe various kinds of human love. Often the biblical authors use them in the same way that we use the English word to describe everything from from loving a bowl of ice cream to loving our children to loving God. Both in Greek and in English, the context informs us of the exact nature of the love. What we need to know about our love for our wives doesn't come primarily from the Greek word here, but from the context. And in this context, it's the example of Jesus Christ. We have one primary calling as husbands. Men, we have one job. Don't mess it up. Husbands, love your wives. But what what does that love look like? How are we to love Well, a second insight into faithfulness in marriage that we gain in this passage is love's primary expressions. Beginning in the middle of verse 25 and running down to verse 30, Paul uses a couple of pictures to illustrate the love we're to have for our wives. And those pictures will give us the primary expressions of love. The two pictures are Christ's treatment of the church and our treatment of our bodies. And both of these pictures give us specific ways to demonstrate or express our love for our wives. Put the two pictures together, Christ's treatment of the church and our treatment of our bodies, and we discover that there are four primary expressions of a man's love for his wife. As Paul discusses Christ's treatment of the church, first of all, we learn that our love for our wives must be a sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. He sacrificed himself for her. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant or a pleasing aroma to God, the smell of satisfaction in the nostrils of God. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we read, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. In 1 John 3, verse 16, He laid down his life for us. You and I are to follow Christ's example and ultimately be willing to sacrifice our lives for our wives. But it means so much more than that because most of us here will never be called on to sacrifice our lives for our wives. It means that we must be willing to make simple ordinary, daily sacrifices for them as well. It's like the wife who told her husband, listen, honey, I I know that you love me so much you would die for me. You've told me that often. How about in the meantime taking out the trash? (laughs) John MacArthur writes, if a loving husband is willing to sacrifice his life for his wife, 
he is certainly willing to make lesser sacrifices for her. He puts, listen to this, his own likes, desires, opinions, preferences, and welfare aside if that is required to please her and meet her needs. He dies to self in order to live for his wife because that is what Christ's kind of love demands. Leadership isn't about asserting your rights and your authority. It's about serving your wife. Let me ask you this question, and we all need to do some serious soul searching here. Does your wife think of you as someone who regularly sacrifices to serve her? As we meditate on this, let let me just mention four ways that I think we can very practically, sacrificially love our wives. First of all, each day we can make conscious decisions to put her interests, her desires, her needs before our own. You see, this love for your wife is a very practical thing. It means each day and moment by moment you're asking yourself, am I going to do what I want or am I going to do those things that would please her and meet her needs? This is what Christ does for his bride. Romans 15, 3, Christ did not please himself. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And of course, the ultimate expression of that service, to give his life as a ransom for many. The most graphic illustration of Jesus' humble service for his bride was at the upper room, of course, in John 13, where he assumes the position of the lowliest slave to care for his disciples, to model that menial service to another believer in Christ. In fact, if I could put it this way and not be disrespectful, what Jesus did for the 12 in John 13 is the first century equivalent for the routine duties that many husbands are called on to make taking out the trash, drying the dishes, vacuuming the house, getting up with the baby. There are so many countless daily sacrifices that we can make for our wives. You get home from work, you're tired, had a terrible counseling appointment just before you left the office. You just want to sit down and rest and read or entertain yourself in some way, but but your wife needs help with dinner or with the kids or she wants to talk. Or she wants to go out, eat, go out to eat and, and then gasp, do some shopping. And she wants you to go with her. You can choose to do what you want. And sadly, we often do. Or you can sacrifice for her. Ken Hughes writes, For some men, golf is synonymous to Dante's Paradiso, Whereas the entrance to a department store, like the gates of hell, bears the inscription, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. (laughs) But if we love our wives, we will forsake the platonic greens for the fiery gates because we value their interests and love to be with them. Now, I need to confess to you, and I think we all understand this, making those kinds of daily sacrifices for our wives is contrary to our flesh. Ted Tripp points out that that even when I try to serve my wife, my selfishness just shows up. 
I volunteer to go to the kitchen to dip some ice cream for dessert for both of us. And I let her sit and relax because she's had a hard and busy day. And, and I dip the ice cream and I'm feeling pretty good about my sacrifice until I realize that on the way back to the den, I'm carefully weighing the two bowls of ice cream <laughs> to decide which of them has the most so I can keep it. In love, we must daily sacrifice for our wives. Let's be very clear here, and, and this is as pointed as I can make it. If you are always asking your wife to sacrifice for you and your ministry rather than displaying the pattern of Jesus Christ of sacrificial love for her, it is sin. A second way that we can sacrifice for our wives, just on a very practical note here in this sacrificial love, is every day we can put away all of our distractions, iPhones, whatever, make eye contact, and have a real conversation with your wife. Some men never talk to, never really talk to, or listen to their wives. I, I'm often struck by 1 Peter 3, 7 in that regard. Peter says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Listen to this. This is chilling. So that your prayers will not be hindered. In essence, Peter says, if you are not loving your wife enough to listen to her, God's not listening to you. Just on a, a practical note, thirdly, I, I would say another means is to discover, discover the way that your wife genuinely knows that you love her and do that consistently. This, this is part of the sacrificial love. We are to meet their needs. That's the very definition of love. And, and as we pursue that, we need to know what they need and consistently try to do that. Personally, I'm content just to be with Sheila, even if it's at Home Depot. Now, I have to admit to you that I'm a little slow relationally, but I have learned this. She doesn't find that particularly satisfying. I have discovered that my wife feels especially loved when I am willing to set everything else aside and to sit down with her and to talk deeply about goals and fears and desires and plans. That is the thing I can do above all else that says to her, I really love you. So I can selfishly choose to do what I want, or I can make a conscious choice to love my wife by doing the thing I know makes her feel loved. Do you know what you do that best communicates your love to your wife, and do you consistently do that? Another way to sacrifice for your wife, just at a very practical level, and a very biblical one, is open up and disclose yourself to her. You see, this is a pattern of relationships. Let's go to the ultimate relationships, those within the Trinity. The love among the members of the Trinity is characterized by a full disclosure of themselves. We read these words in John 5, verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. 
The same is true of Christ's love for his bride, for us. John 14, 21, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, part of the essence of love is self-disclosure. If you are a closed book, if your wife doesn't know your thoughts and plans and hopes, you don't love your wife. In fact, according to Jesus Christ, you're treating her no better than a slave. But, but don't miss Paul's big point here in Ephesians 5. The standard of our love for our wives is nothing less than the cross of Jesus Christ. Both of the verbs there in verse 25 point back to the cross. He loved her and demonstrated that love by giving himself up for her at the cross. Our Lord loved his bride when she was his enemy. We are to love our wives sacrificially, regardless of how lovable or submissive or loving they are in return, whether they are young or old, whether they are homely or beautiful, slow or intelligent, responsive or as cold as ice. And we are to love them our entire lives, even if we never see any benefit in return. Our love is to be a sacrificial love. A second expression of Jesus' love for the church that we are to copy is that our love for our wives must also be a sanctifying love, verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now again, it's important to follow the flow of Paul's thought. In verse 25, he says Christ died for the church. Then in verse 26, he cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word. Here is the application of redemption, the work of the Son applied through the work of the Spirit. This is the spiritual cleansing that occurs at the moment of salvation when the Spirit of God used the word of God through the gospel to give our souls a bath. As Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration. And what was his purpose? Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed us at the moment of salvation, he then set out to sanctify us. This is exactly what Sinclair was talking about yesterday and so powerfully reminding us of. This was Christ's purpose in giving himself for us. Verse 26, he gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Christ didn't give himself up for us in death only to purchase our forgiveness, although certainly he did that, but his ultimate aim was much greater. It was to make us holy. But why does he want us to be holy? Verse 27, that, literally, so that, or in order that, here's why he wants to sanctify us, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here, of course, the church is described as a beautiful young bride. He will present to himself the church in all her glory. The, the picture is of a bride who is beautifully presented in a stunning dress with brilliant jewels, 
having no spot, that is no stain or blemish on her character or wrinkle, no pucker or fold of skin. In other words, no sign of spiritual aging whatsoever. Verse 27, or any such thing, no imperfection at all. And to make it clear that he's talking about spiritual beauty, he finishes verse 27 by leaving the metaphor and speaking plainly. Notice he says, Jesus wants all of us collectively and you individually to be holy and blameless. Holy, to reflect God's utter uniqueness and purity. Blameless, to be totally without moral defect. He wants to present us in that way. When does this presentation happen? Happen? It happens when he returns for his bride. That's what he's moving toward. He saved us to sanctify us so that he could present us to himself. Just as practically we are engaged in that as Mark reminded us last night. But here's the point with marriage. Like Christ, your greatest concern for your wife must be her spiritual well-being, that she has experienced true regeneration, that she truly knows Christ, and that she is growing in true sanctification, that she is continually manifesting the moral likeness of Jesus Christ. What ways can we demonstrate this sanctifying love? I think you understand this, but it begins with pursuing sanctification ourselves. We can't lead where we haven't been. Does your wife know that you spend daily personal time in the Word and prayer? Sadly, that's not always true, even among pastors. Does she see you genuinely trying to bring your life into conformity to the Word of God? Another way we can be a sanctifying influence in their lives is simply by doing nothing that would expose them to sin and temptation. We must do nothing that promotes or encourages our wives to sin. Sometimes it's by what we're careless with. Be very careful what you read and what you watch and what you stream and what you allow into your home and into your family's life. But it also comes by our sin against them. You can cause your wife to sin and frustrate her sanctification by your sin against her. Don't be so stubborn or so unkind or so hurtful in your words that you encourage sinful anger or bitterness in her heart. And when you sin against her, seek her forgiveness. Ultimately, if we're going to be a sanctifying influence in the, in the lives of our wives, we must imitate Christ's own spiritual care for his bride. So many places you could go to see that. But I think one of the most graphic descriptions of that is in John 17 in the high priestly prayer of Christ as, as he details his love for his bride. So how should we imitate him in this way? Well, teach your wife the truth and talk about the truth with her all the time. That's what Jesus did with his disciples, John 17, 8. The words which you have given me, Father, I have given to them. Pray for her sanctification. John 17, 17, Jesus did this. He prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Pray for her protection and perseverance. John 17, 11, Jesus said to the Father, my bride is in the world. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And of course, that famous passage in Luke 22, verse 32, where he said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Is that how you love your wife and pursue her sanctification? And 
Don't become bitter when she sins against you, but forgive her as Jesus forgives us, as he models so beautifully in John 21 with Peter. Our love for our wives must be a sanctifying love. Is your wife more like Jesus Christ in her moral character because she is married to you? So far, Paul has been teaching us how to love our wives using the picture of Christ's love for the church. It's to be a sacrificial love. It's to be a sanctifying love. But, but beginning in verse 28, he moves to a second picture, our treatment of our bodies. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, in one sense, of course, he's not leaving Christ in his church because we are his body. But in another sense, he is. And I think in part that's because we have a problem fully grasping what Christ's love for us looks like, but we are all too familiar and understand what it's like to provide for and to care for our own bodies. So Paul begins by explaining why this picture works. Verse 28, husbands ought, the Greek word there is we're morally obligated to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. You see, we naturally love ourselves, and one of the main ways that we manifest that love is by caring for our bodies. Your wife, Paul is saying, is part of you. So it is as reasonable to care for her as for your own body, and in fact, it's irrational not to. Verse 29, for, for no one ever hated his own flesh. No person naturally in a rational state of mind hates and refuses to care for his own body. In my backyard, back in Texas, there are some huge live oaks, and we enjoy them very much, but one of them has this tendency to sprout a lot of shoots off of its root, roots. And, and one Saturday, a couple of years ago, I was pulling up those shoots, and like any real man, I, I didn't see any need to use gloves, and so when I was done... I looked at my finger, and I had pulled back a flap of skin off of my finger about the size of a dime. Now, it's just a small injury. We've all experienced things that are far worse. But I, I use it for a particular reason. It was just a small thing. And yet, even with that small injury to my body, I nursed it, and I cared for it, and I put the, the lotions and the things I should put on there to fight infection, and I had a, a Band-Aid on it for a time, and I, I was careful not to shake hands too hard with that torn spot on my finger. I nursed that finger, that little tiny injury, for a week or two. What if you had heard me during those days talking to my finger like this? I am just fed up with you're not doing your part around here. I am sick and tired of your whining and complaining. After all I've done to provide for you, I put a roof over your head. I just want to know what's in this relationship for me. I'm the one putting out. I'm the one making all the sacrifices. You are simply pathetic. I hate you, and I wish you'd leave. We would never do that to our bodies. And Paul is saying here, it is just as ridiculous to speak to our wives that way. It is just as illogical to treat our wives with any kind of contempt. In fact, I cannot say it better than Charles Hodge did. He writes, it is just as unnatural for a man to hate his wife as it would be for him to hate himself or his own body. 
A man may have a body which does not altogether suit him. He may wish it were handsomer, healthier, stronger, or more active. Still, it is his body, it is himself, and he nourishes it and cherishes it as tenderly as though it were the best and loveliest man ever had. So a man may have a wife whom he could wish to be better or more beautiful or more agreeable. Still, she is his wife. And by the constitution of nature and the ordinance of God, a part of himself. In neglecting or ill-using her, he violates both the laws of nature as well as the law of God. John Calvin was even more direct. He said, every man by his very nature loves himself, but no man can love himself without loving his wife. Listen to this. Therefore, the man who does not love his wife is a monster. In this picture of the treatment of our bodies, Paul provides us with two additional expressions of our love for our wives. It is to be a sacrificial love, we've learned. It's to be a sanctifying love. But in this picture, we learn thirdly that our our love for our wives should be a nourishing love. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. We, we naturally nourish our bodies, and in the same way, we're to nourish our wives as well. Now, this language, by the way, was common in first century marriage contracts, even secular ones. In one such contract, the man promises to cherish, nourish, and clothe her. What is this nourish? The word means to feed, to provide, to nurture, or care for. What Christ is commanding us here is to love our wives by providing for their physical needs just as we provide for the physical needs of our bodies. This is clear in Old and New Testament. You go back to Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, and the law identified three physical needs that the husband must meet with, for his wife. He must provide food, he must provide clothing, and he must provide conjugal rights. You come to 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul reminds us that our bodies belong to our wives, and we are to consistently meet their sexual needs. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says that we are to provide for our own with all of their material needs. And of course, our wives would be included in that. And Christ does this. Christ cares for the physical needs of those he loves. I had the joy, as many of you have, of teaching through Psalm 23 and being reminded of the care of the great shepherd for his sheep. You see it in the heart of Christ in Matthew 15, 32, where he says, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. You just see his compassion for the physical needs of people. Scripture demands that we provide for all the physical needs of our bride, not barely enough so they can get by, but with the same lavishness that we bestow on our bodies and that Christ bestows on his bride. And we sin against our wives when we fail to do so. Man, it is a sin if we are lazy and fail to provide for our wives. It is a sin if we accumulate debt to fund our lifestyles. It is a sin if we are miserly and give to our wives 
only a little for their material and physical needs. It's a sin if we force our wives to work to fund the lifestyle we want but don't need and can't afford. It's a sin if we neglect physical intimacy with our wives to seek sinful, selfish pleasure in digital images on a computer screen. Christ calls us to love our wives with a nourishing love, and that is a love that is intent on meeting her physical needs. Our treatment of our own bodies teaches us a fourth expression of our love. It should also be a cherishing love. Verse 29 For no one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. The Greek word for cherish is literally to heat or to keep warm. Used metaphorically as it is here, it means to care for, to tenderly care for. In fact, the only other time this word, this Greek word occurs in the New Testament is in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, and it's used of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her child. That's how we are to care for our wives. Paul's point is we treat our bodies with this tender care. I mean, think about how much time you and I spend every day in activities like eating, Sleeping, showering, shaving, applying various creams and lotions and gels. Of course, the older you get, the more of those there are and the longer it gets. Or, or if you want a real education in how much we tenderly care for our bodies, just watch men at the gym. Or better, and this is really embarrassing, but watch men watching themselves in the mirror at the gym. Paul's... Paul's point here is that our responsibility to our wives isn't simply to provide for their needs. Well, you've got what you need. That's my duty. We are supposed to cherish them and care for them with the same tender affection we show our own bodies. We're just supposed to be tender with them in the same way that a nursing mother treats her newborn. How do we fail to cherish our wives? Well, there's so many ways, but I, I would just say we, we fail to cherish our wives and sin against them when we neglect them for sports, hobbies, video games, male friends, or even for ministry. I think we fail to cherish our wives when we're angry with them, either by blowing up, the two, the two Greek words, either by blowing up or clamming up. We don't cherish our wives when we use our words as weapons when we ridicule, belittle, or abuse them with our words, when we make cutting, sarcastic, demeaning comments, sadly, some pastors, even from the pulpit. Man, that is not Christian. That is pagan. Instead, we are to cherish them as we do our own bodies. Why? Because that's how Christ treats us. Look at Ephesians 5, 29. He says, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. Now, notice the important change in verse 30. We, individually, are members of his body. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body, and he cherishes us not only as a group but individually. How does Christ show us that he cherishes us? Again, I wish I had time to take you through even the journey I went through in chasing this down for my own 
benefit. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts. He verbally expresses his love. I was struck with that again and again in the Scripture. He verbally expresses his love to us. I showed you chapter 5, verse 2. This is Christ's word to, to us. He loved you. Verse 25, Christ loved the church. He loves you. You know, many men struggle to tell their wives that they love them. Like the man who said to his wife, I told you when we were married that I loved you, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) Compare that to the Lord's open, lavish expressions of his love for us. Elsewhere in Scripture, we discover that Christ expresses his cherishing love by using terms of endearment, by comforting us, by protecting and defending us, by providing guidance for us, encourages us, he sympathizes with us, He fulfills our requests beyond what we ask. He gives us what we need without our asking. And on and on the list could go. Do we cherish our wives like that? Do we treat them with tenderness? You know, I was struck a few years ago that in God's common grace, even some unbelievers get this. Last century, there was a formal banquet in London, and those attending were asked to answer this question. If you could be anyone from history, who would you most want to be? And of course, as they went around the table, the answers included a list of history's greatest men and women. But everyone at the banquet that night was eager to hear what Winston Churchill, who was there with his wife Clementine, would say. What great figure of history would he most want to be if he couldn't be Winston Churchill? When it came his turn, Churchill stood, and he said, if I could not be who I am, and then as he was prone to do, had a dramatic pause and reached down and grabbed his wife Clementine's hand, and then he said this, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. There's there's an unbeliever who understood something of what it was to cherish your wife. So understand this, the expression of our love for our wives is to be, first of all, sacrificial. We're to put her needs above our own. Secondly, it is to be sanctifying. What needs are we to meet? We're to meet her spiritual needs. It's to be nourishing. Thirdly, we are to meet her physical needs. And with what attitude are we to seek to meet these needs? Cherishing love. We are to meet her needs with the same gentleness and eagerness that a nursing mother exhibits toward her newborn Is that the way we love our wives? By the way, Paul could have given these same commands to us in regard to our children. The the specific applications would be different, but the guiding principle is the same. So this truly is how to be faithful in your home with both your wife and your children. Now, very briefly, so far we've discovered two important insights about faithfulness in marriage. Our primary calling, which is love, and secondly, love's four primary expressions. Paul closes his comments here with a third insight, love's primary goals, verses 31 and 32. Why is our obedience to this command so important? What are we aiming for? You understand this. There are a number of goals that Paul could have cited, but here he only mentions two. First of all, to reflect the original design of God. Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. 
Paul takes us back to the first marriage and to Moses' inspired commentary about marriage. He tells us that God intended marriage to be life's supreme permanent relationship, that a man and a woman would leave their parents and be inseparably united, joined to each other, the two parts together to form a complete whole. They are so permanently glued to, are joined together, body and soul, that they become one. And to separate them would be to damage both. We are to love our wives as ourselves to reflect God's original design that we would become one flesh. A second goal behind our love in verse 32 is truly extraordinary. It's to point to the ultimate love. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, you understand, obviously, Paul means here that marriage pictures the relationship between Christ and us. But what he says is even more profound than that. He says, here's a mystery, here's a truth that was known in the past only by God, but has now been revealed. He says, Moses was speaking of a man and his wife, but I myself, is actually what he says, I myself am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. That's the same expression that Christ uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul here is authoritatively interpreting Genesis 2.24 as referring to Christ and his church. We have the mistaken idea that Paul was sitting in his jail cell one day trying to decide how to illustrate our relationship to Christ, and and suddenly he had an aha moment. Oh, marriage, of course. No, that's entirely backwards. In eternity past, God decided to save sinners through the work of his son, and he decided to create marriage then as a living illustration around us all of the time of that reality. God created marriage not only because it was not good for man to be alone, but also as a powerful illustration of the relationship believers have with the Son of God. Your marriage, my marriage, they they don't exist primarily for us and for our desires and our needs. Our marriages exist as living illustrations of Christ in the church, and men, like it or not, Our marriages and the condition of our marriages and the state of our love for our wives is saying something about Christ every day. One author writes, every marriage everywhere in the world is a picture of Christ in the church. Because of sin and rebellion, many of these pictures pictures are slanderous lies concerning Christ. But a husband can never stop talking about Christ in the church. If he's obedient to God, he's preaching the truth. If he does not love his wife, he is speaking apostasy and lies, but he's always talking. If he deserts his wife, he is saying that this is the way Christ deserts his bride, a lie. If he is harsh with his wife, he is saying that Christ is harsh with the church, another lie. If he sleeps with another woman, he is an adulterer and a blasphemer as well. How could Christ love someone other than his own bride? It is astonishing how for a few moments of pleasure, faithless men can bring themselves to slander the faithfulness of Christ in such a way. Men, our marriages are lenses through which the world sees our Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. How can we be faithful to that duty? We have to pursue our primary calling. Love your wife with a sacrificial, sanctifying, nourishing cherishing love 
and do it for the glory of God, our creator, and the glory of Christ, our redeemer, and for his gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these magnificent verses. I pray for all of us. Lord, may we love our wives in such a way. Lord, I pray for those men who here this afternoon whose marriages are in shambles. Help them to see the lie that that is about Christ. And Father, may they turn in repentance to you and then to their wives. Father, for those who who are modeling these things, help us to excel still more. Lord, help us to reflect this. May our wives see it. May the people around us see it. And in so doing, may they see Christ and his amazing love for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.